there were efforts to reconcile mm-hmm. with his former bandmate Graham Nash and Neil Young at the very end of his life. I think if he could have lived even just a few days longer, there would have been a reconciliation. We are talking about the legacy of David Crosby on this special episode of Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. When Crosby died last month at the age of 81, Tributes poured in from musicians around the world who remembered him as one of the most beloved singer-songwriters of the 20th century. Well, we wanted to bring you this extended cut of a lovely conversation Robin Young had with someone who knew Crosby well, and who has a lot to say about Crosby's life and art. Here's Robin. San Francisco-based Steve Silverman is not on the autism spectrum, but he's an authority on the subject. His book, Neurotribes, is a bestseller. He gave a keynote speech at the U.N. His TED Talk has a million views. Steve also won a gold record for co-producing the Grateful Dead's box set, So Many Roads, and he was one of the late David Crosby's best friends. To everything turn, turn, turn. David Crosby singing the high notes for the birds, and here for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I am yours, you are mine, you are what you are. You make it hard, and you make it hard, and you make it hard, and you make it hard. Steve Silverman's Twitter feed has beautiful pictures of him and David Crosby, including one where they give each other a big kiss. Well, Steve Silverman is here to remember his friend, and I am so sorry because I'm sure when you hear the late David Crosby, it's still a shock. It is a shock. And in fact, I expect at any moment to get a text from him saying, like, death is really weird, you know, because we were in more or less constant touch with each other for about the past 30 years. Yeah. And we had a lot of fun adventures together. Yeah. Well, when did this start? You were a teen, right? Well, yeah, it started long before he knew about me. I heard his song Guinevere when I was about 15, playing in a sandal shop in Provincetown. Well, in fact, we have Guinevere. Let's just listen Great. to a little of that and its beautiful, soaring, haunting melody. Guinevere Green eyes like yours, lady like yours. She'd walk down through the garden in the morning after it rained. Steve, I mean, this was, you know, this was sort of a blend of folk and rock at this time. What struck you like lightning? I thought it was the most beautiful melody I'd ever heard. The open tuning, although I did not know what that was. On the guitar, It had a sort of cyclical, almost a quality like a mantra in a sense. It was a very meditative, very serene, but also mysterious tune. And in fact, among the people who realized there was no other tune quite like it, was no less than Miles Davis, who recorded a half an hour version of Guinevere on one of his own albums. But I didn't get to know David until the early 90s. Crosby, Stills, and Nash were producing a box set 
and they wanted some bonus tracks. And a friend of mine was with them in Los Gatos and kept saying, well, Steve Silverman says this is the best version of that song. And so finally, they eventually said, well, get this guy down here. So I went down to the hotel where they were staying, hung out with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which was, of course, an, you know, an unbelievable experience for a young Crosby, Stills, and Nash fan. Didn't connect so much with David. The way that we really became friends was that I heard that he was a so-called fax addict, was the phrase I heard. And I thought, well, if he's a fax addict, the man should have email. So I set him up with his first email account, and he loved it. He said, what username should I use? And I said, well, I don't know. You know, it should probably be something so people can't figure out who you are. And he said, I want people to figure out who I am. How about Cross? You know? yeah. So I thought, oh, okay, that's how this is going to go. He's just going to throw himself into it. And he was known as Cross. So now it seems as if you are someone who's helping David Crosby. You started a podcast together you talked to him about everything, and you sent us this clip. You asking him how a visit to an orchestra when he was six launched him into a lifetime of music. It was that they were doing it together. Yeah. They yeah. made a thing by moving together, by cooperative effort. They made a sound that was so big and so beautiful, it was like life-changing. That's so fascinating, Steve Silverman, because I'm thinking— that's what David Crosby brought to the birds and to other groups, this sense of moving together, that harmony. Absolutely. Some people say, like, you can't really hear David singing lead in Crosby, Sills, and Nash or even the birds. David made other people's harmonies even better. He was the ultimate communal music maker who could make everybody play over their own heads and create kinds of beauty that they would have thought uh, they weren't capable of. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, one of my favorites, Helplessly Hoping. Helplessly hoping her harlequin Others nearby Awaiting a word Gasping at glimpses of gentle true spirit He runs Wishing he could fly high Only to trip at the sound of goodbye You talked about troubled times that David Crosby had, no secret. He burned a lot of bridges. He once said that his former bandmates didn't want to have much to do with him. Uh, talk yes, absolutely. And by the way, I'm going to tell you something that no one knows. But there were uh, efforts to reconcile with his former bandmate, Graham Nash, and Neil Young at the very end of his life. And that is not public knowledge, but David did not want things to go down that that way at the end. I think if he could have lived even just a few days longer, there would have been a reconciliation. Oh, one, one would hope. Well, I'm wondering, too, you know, he became even a bigger superstar than he was when you met him, but you... No slouch. I mean, Oliver Sacks called your book A Neurotribe's The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity. That's in 2015. A sweeping and penetrating history presented with rare sympathy and sensitivity. Maybe I'm reaching here. Maybe this is of no import. But I'm just wondering how your sense of people and behavior helped you. Well, that, you know, that's a very relevant question. I'll tell you why. Because until I wrote Neurotribe's, 
and became friends with Oliver Sacks, who was also David's friend. You know, I was basically a, a David Crosby fan and a, and a journalist. But once I wrote Neurotribes, he recognized me as a co-creator, in a sense, as not a peer, because he was always more like a mentor or mm. older brother or uncle to me. And so that changed the relationship that I had with David. And I think he took me even more seriously as a person. And I gave David, by the way, the very first signed copy of Neurotribes before it became a bestseller to honor the creativity that mm. his music had inspired in me. Mm. But I'm just wondering if your expertise in human behavior helped you navigate a friendship that some other people couldn't. They just, you know, as David Crosby said, some people couldn't put up with me. Yes. Well, David was, uh, you know, a huge personality. One of the things that I miss is picking up my cell phone, seeing the name David Crosby appear on the screen, answering it and hearing, it is I, mighty and wise, you know? <laughs> well, he I did mean, look like the Wizard knew, of Oz. <laughs> right. He knew he was an enormous narcissist and that had created all kinds of problems throughout his life. But oddly enough, he was never difficult to me. Yeah. He always treated me with absolute sweetness, respect, and generosity. Talk about the music. What music did he love? What music did he talk to you about? The songs that he felt encapsulated his message best were songs like uh, Rusty and Blue, Tracks in the Dust, Page 43 from earlier <laughs> in his career. Rainbows all The silver and gold. It'll make you old. He would occasionally, and more so as he got older, write songs that were teaching songs. His partner Graham Nash had written Teach Your Children Well. He wrote songs to teach all of us well. One of his best albums ever was recorded just a couple of years ago. It was called Here If You Listen. He had a song called Balanced on a Pin, which is about how fragile life is and how vulnerable we all are and how everything is impermanent. It's a bubble Balanced on a pin this place I'm in, the space I'm in. It was basically Buddhism without Buddha. He was one of the most thoughtful and philosophically minded people I've ever known. Well, here he is uh, again on your podcast together. Uh, you asked him what advice he had for today's young people. Don't lose hope. It can seem very grim. Mm -hmm. It seemed very grim to us when we were being ignored mm -hmm. and the country was roaring to war mm -hmm. in Vietnam where we should should not have been. We didn't give up. You're facing a situation, you young people. You're looking at a broken democracy, and we're asking you to believe in democracy. It was very tough. Very tough for me to tell you democracy works. Only it does. I beg you to give it another shot. I beg you to vote. Of course, we have to listen to a little of Ohio about the four dead in Ohio, the Kent State students who were killed. In 1970. 
But Steve Silverman, I want to be careful here. Tender topic. Do you think in the end, did he still have hope? Yes, although things like Elon Musk uh, buying Twitter and turning it into a cesspool of right-wing disinformation really depressed him. You know, his hope was shaky, but he still had it. And it was a hope for the transformation of the world in a more humane direction that he'd been carrying with him in his heart since the civil rights days. He kept that flame burning till the very end of his life. That is author, music producer, writer, Steve Silberman, talking about his decades-long, somewhat improbable at the beginning, friendship with the late legendary Dave Crosby. Steve, I would love to leave our listeners with another part of your podcast about how much David Crosby valued life. And it's when you asked him about death. Uh, So we'll leave listeners with that. And in the meantime, I, I thank you so much, and I wish you well. Thank you. He was wonderful, and I miss him so much. I'm not obsessed with it. I don't spend my time thinking about death. Yes, you do. No, I do not. Okay. I brought it up with you because you're one of the only people that I know who's not afraid to talk about anything. True. And and, uh, that's a gift, and I'm grateful for it. Thank you so much. So much. That's a bitch, man. Okay, the real bitch is that we don't have enough time. Yeah. We don't have anywhere near enough time. Yeah. I didn't start figuring out who I was until I was in my 50s, for God's sakes. Here I am just now, finally having adjusted my life to where I'm happy most of the time, and I'm going to die. Yeah. Where the f*** is that at? That sucks. Yeah. You know, it's very tough. I got a dozen things that I still want to learn. There's yeah. like three languages, two sections of history, at least five sciences, and, and I've got a, a wish list of places I want to see. Yeah experiences I want to have that's as long as your goddamn arm and I no time yeah and it's worse than that I wasted years of time that I could have now to use if I hadn't wasted them time is the final currency not money not power This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR. The producer behind Robin's conversation with Steve Silberman is Karen Miller-Medson. Todd Munt edited. Technical direction from Max Liebman. Thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. For one more hour Today